and welcome to the Industry 4.0 Community Podcast, uh, sponsored by 4.0 Solutions and IoT.University. I am your host with the most, Walker D. Reynolds. <laughs> um, today, uh, we have actually an interesting podcast. So this is, uh, I have Chuck Ridgeway from Horner Automation with me. And um, the idea for this podcast was, hey, Chuck has something to say. His company has something to say. Um, they, Chuck is involved in the, the forward-facing presence at Horner Automation. Let's bring him on the podcast and let's have a conversation about automation, um, overall equipment effectiveness, digital transformation, industry four. We won't really have a purpose, right? But we actually decided, I've, I've literally spoken to Chuck for 90 seconds. <laughs> I, know, I know basically nothing about Chuck. What we decided to do is do this podcast as, a, as an opportunity for me to teach the community how I do these meetings. So I, there are a lot of people who reach out, want to have conversations. And I basically have the same conversation with everyone, or at least I, the same framework. So I think we're mm -hmm. going to do that today. So with that, I'm no, no announcements, no anything like that, other than I want to make sure everyone has a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and a happy whatever you may celebrate if it's not Christmas and Happy and New Year. And um, I want to encourage one thing. I did this in, in mentorship on Friday. You know, we took 10 minutes at the end and I said this. <clears throat> I remember watching a clip of a... Um, I don't know if it was Simon Sinek or if it was um, uh, or if it was one of the other um, self-help gurus. But what the what this guy was saying was he asked the his guest how many times they see their parents in a year. And he said, I think I see them three to four times a year. You know, I, I we do Fourth of July. We do Christmas. We do Easter. Are they healthy? Yeah. How old are they? Oh, they're in the early 60s. And he said, I want you to do a thought of experiment. Let's say that you see your parents three times a year and they're going to live to the average life expectancy. If you're seeing them three times a year and they are 63 years old, and that is that they're going to live 15 more years, basically, then that means you have 45 more visits with your parents. Like if you don't think about it in terms of time, you think of it in terms of instances. And so what I want everyone to do, I, we had this thought experiment that that quote actually really changed my my view on prioritizing the holidays. I used to when at the beginning of my career, I worked every Christmas. I worked every Thanksgiving. When I started Intellic integration, I literally spent the first Thanksgiving after Intellic negotiating a contract all day long. My family was inside and I was out in the lanai out and I was literally negotiating a master service agreement all day long. Why? Because the people who were negotiating the master service agreement were based in India, and they didn't celebrate American Thanksgiving. So um, they were working, and so I worked. I don't do that anymore. I make sure that on Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter and, and Fourth of July and all of the holidays when families come together, Memorial Day, I stop everything, and I soak it up. And so what I want to encourage everyone to do is if you don't do that, do it this year. Soak it up on Christmas Day. And if you do do that, kudos to you and teach someone else to do the same thing. All right. With that, Chuck Ridgeway, Horner Automation, let's have a conversation. Let's start with, <laughs> Chuck, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself sure. to the audience, kind of who you are, what your background is, and you know what is your experience in, in automation? And that'll kind of lay the foundation. Sure. So 
my name is Chuck Ridgeway. I'm the Automation Technology Manager at Horner Automation. Now, just a quick word on who Horner is, and then we'll dive into me. So Horner Automation, just quickly, for all intents and purposes, we're a U.S. PLC manufacturer. Um, so that's what we do as a company. We'll go into more detail later. For me personally, um, I've worked for Horner for, geez, almost 35 years now. Wow. I started my career uh, in the 80s uh, in Michigan. That's where I grew up. And I started out in automotive. You know, everybody from Michigan starts out in automotive, right? And then um, after I was done with my engineering interning at General Motors, uh, then I joined a PLC company. So I actually went to work for Square D back when they were a PLC company before they were part of the whole Schneider group. How, and, how long were you in automotive before you made that jump? So when sure. you first. Yeah, five years. So I was in automotive for five years. And full disclosure, I was a, uh, an intern at the time. So the, the college I went to, Kettering University, basically to get in there, I was an electrical engineering student, and that's where I got my degree. But to get in there, you had to have a company sponsor. Uh -huh. So for the full five-year program, and it was a four-year degree and a five-year program, for that full period of time, you had to have a company where you could alternate work sections with school sections. So I would go to work for three months. I would go to school for three months for a semester. And we alternated that for five years. So at the end of five years, I had a four-year degree and two and a half years of work experience. So it was fantastic. And how, and, and was that, so that was in the 80s? That was early. Uh, 84 through 88. All right. So let me ask you this. So today, mm -hmm. when, when I, early in my career, I don't mean to side rate, we'll get back to the full mm -hmm. introduction. Yeah, corner. that's fine. When I was, I worked in, for a tier one automotive supplier. So my mm -hmm. last, my last job working for the manufacturer was mm -hmm. working for Borg Warner Automotive. Okay. And I was in their facility in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. And I was in charge of punch presses, pin, um, pin, uh, pin machines, and heat treat. So we made mm -hmm. timing chain. That was sure. primarily what we did. That was the industry I was in. Mm -hmm. And I would get co-ops from Clarkson University primarily. Clarkson mm -hmm. was where we had our, our relationship with the manufacturing engin engineering program. Right, right. And one of the things that the, the co-ops would always joke about you know, they do four months with us is that, you know, they basically spent a clipboard, you know, spent four months holding a clipboard and collecting data off of sensors and that kind sure. of stuff. Sure. Can you talk a little bit about, cause I know that that's different. I, when mm -hmm. I talk, when I talk to the guys that I worked with, cause that was at the, that was 2009, 10, mm -hmm. 11 for me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the guys who had 25, 30 years in would say, Oh, you know, the co-op program has changed so much. Like right. when I was a co-op, I did it. I really did actual work. I was sure. on actual projects. I was, was that your, what was your, what was your, your experience like right. during your education from 84 to 88, where you, when you were actually working, was it clipboard measuring sensors or, or what kind of stuff were you actually doing? I mean, it was really all over the place. So part of the goal of that program was for co-ops to really learn the entire operation of the plant by the time they were done. So I worked in every possible department from personnel to, it was a stamping plant, by the way, we were making car body parts for, back when I started, it was Fisher Body. And by the time I was done, Fisher Body was no more as a name at least. But anyway, so it was everything from personnel to tool and die, working with coveralls on, working beside the guys in the tool and die shop, learning how to do some basic things, almost like I was a apprentice, you know, um, and that might be six or eight weeks of doing that. And then I might have six or eight weeks with the electrical engineering group or whatever the case may be. I've spent a lot of my time in maintenance with okay. the as with electrical guys and with 
uh, pipe fitters and and machine guys. So there was a lot of learning going on, but there was also real projects. One of my real projects with the machine repair guys was they really struggled um, with a certain type of repair on the stamping press, and they were looking for some help. You know, back in 1988 with artificial intelligence, right. to, uh, putting an artificial intelligence system together to help them diagnose problems with the stamping press better for hydraulic valves. So, you know, it, it really was all over the place, but there were some really good in-depth uh, projects that I did. And then there were ones that were more superficial, more about, you know, I would do the day-to-day tasks in that department as I'd kind of learned what, how that department worked. And so would would you agree with the general statement that mm-hmm. that type of cooperative education mm-hmm. uh, either doesn't really exist today or it exists on a much more limited basis. It's much harder to find that opportunity today than it was when you were in this program in 84 to 88. I mean, the quality. It sounds sure. like you, you did quality work where you right. came out with actual skills, right? Education mm-hmm. and skills. Would right. you agree with the statement that it's harder to find that opportunity today in the current education slash manufacturing environment? I would say in general, that's a true statement. Okay. Okay. But here's what I would say. If you can get on board with some, if you, you know, most of us, when we're students, we know big companies, we don't think about little companies and the fact that most business these days are small businesses, right? 90%, 90% of manufacturing are small manufacturers. If you can get in with a smaller business, okay, that is still doing something that you're interested in, it'll be, you might be, you might get lucky and you could do some incredibly meaningful work. You know, we're a $50 million company. Okay. So we're not tiny, but we're not huge either. Yep. When we have co-ops come in, they're doing, I mean, of course, they got to get acclimated a little bit, but man, we throw, in some cases, we just throw them off the deep end. So is Horner, is Horner pure? So you make the jump to PLCs Mm -hmm. with Square D. Right. I want to I want to I want to come up to Horner and then we'll go back to the square D. Sure. Is Horner it, it, it would a fair comparison be um Horner automation is equivalent to say easy automation? Is that a similar are you familiar you, with easy? Could, yeah, I'm familiar with those guys. So yeah, you could say in general that's true. Yeah. I mean, I mean from the standpoint of we specialize in those sort of products and we're not a huge company like Siemens or Allen Bradley. Got it. Okay. And what is Horner's primary primary market? I mean, obviously, if, what primary market and primary, what's on your line card? Sure. What's the primary market? And then we'll come back to your Square D days. Sure, right. So our primary product is all-in-one controller. So it's PLC plus an HMI in one component. Got it. With built-in IO and networking and all that stuff in one component with one software package to program it. That's our primary com- thing that we sell. So um, software's free? Software's free, yeah, free software. We, you know, when you're a fifty million dollar company, you can't get away with charging, you know, those sort of costs for software for for programming your components. And what is Horner's philosophy? So you guys are building mm-hmm. PLCs for automation and mm-hmm. HMI for control, all mm-hmm. in one. Yep. What? What? A. What is Horner's mission? Like, why sure. did Horner? Why did Horner start doing that? Obviously, there's some gap in the market right. or something that the founders thought was wrong with the market that they were mm-hmm. trying to fix. Mm-hmm. What is Horner's mission? So really the mission was to make it, we've been doing this. What's, what's kind of crazy is this is the 25th year of this PLC plus HMI category, if you will. Right. Yeah. So we weren't the, we weren't the only ones in 1998 when we had our first version of this type of product, yep. but we were one of very, very few. And what the whole idea behind the product was this, 
it was taking way too much effort to get the HMIs and the PLCs just talking to each other right. before you could even do anything to make the machine do what it's supposed to do. Right. One of the things so, that used to always drive me crazy, mm -hmm. drive me nuts. I'm going to pick. Right? On, I'm going to pick on Rockwell here because okay. we're in the United States. But sure. I, I could say this about any of the big players, but mm -hmm. because I'm in the U.S., I'm going to pick on Rockwell. And I'm known for picking on Rockwell. So, sure. one of the things that always drove me absolutely batshit insane was mm -hmm. when I was a early in my career when I was a PLC programmer, mm -hmm. which was, granted was only the first maybe three years. I, people identified pretty quickly. I had other skills. <laughs> they wanted to move me into these other skill sets. Right. One of the things that drove me nuts was, let's say I was using, I wanted, I was taking a panel view plus mm -hmm. and I have a, um, you know, a control logics PLC or a compact logics or a micro logics PLC. Let's mm -hmm. do compact and micro logics because it'll be an apples to apples. Mm -hmm. You guys, if you looked at what the integration steps were to just build an HMI interface, a simple HMI interface from mm -hmm. what it is, you, the OEMs are the same. So the OEM who owns both sets of hardware were the same. You still had to use software in between the two Right. So that they could talk to one another. It drove me. Why was it? I, I would always say this. Why isn't it just one firmware layer? I didn't understand. Right. That. Why, why right. weren't they integrated? Right. It drove me absolutely insane. I thought, man, I spend more time just getting my HMI to access the tags that I've put mm -hmm. inside my PLC. Right. And here's the other thing that would make me even crazier. When I added a new tag. When I made it, when I made a change to my PLC program, which by the way, newsflash guys, CICD, <laughs> you're always adding tags. You're always adding new functions. Right. Oh, I've got, I've got a new function, a new problem to solve. And I've got hardware over there that's connected to the field devices. Let's solve it with that piece of hardware. It drove me crazy. I would have to go back through the integration steps. I got to mm. take it to RS links. I got to pull it into RS links and then I got to map it into the HMI. So mm -hmm. was that a problem that, that, Horner was trying to solve. Yes. Was, okay. One, one set of, of tags. Once one you know, of course, in 1998 they weren't tags. At that point, they were registers. But right. but you know what I mean. Yeah. One all, program. All one, a tag does is is reference a register, right? Right. We, okay. Right. Yeah. So yeah, one one program to configure everything. Okay. Uh, one piece of firmware, right? So if you have to do an update on your system, you're you're updating everything. You know it's going to be compatible when you're done. Um, and, and really one set of tags, that was the big thing, right? So whether, if you had a temperature value, whether you're displaying it on the screen, whether you're using it in a PID loop, whatever you're doing with it, it's the same tag and you're just handling it the same way in one so software let, pack. Let me ask you this question. So this is what I know about Horner. Okay. okay. My, my experience with Horner is in the Excel prime series. Right. Okay. And it was two projects sure. that I came across the prime. Yep. It, 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 there are what are what is the primary set of um so you've got prime you got excel you've mm -hmm. got um, micro series micro okay mm -hmm. and then you got the um the remote control rcs right yeah so right so we have some we do remote. even though even though most of what we make are plcs with built-in hmis we do have some plcs that don't have hmis built into them so those would be the rccs if you will what's the but, difference between the prime and the excel what frankly, the big difference between the Prime and the XL is mainly generation. So the Prime is brand new. Right. Okay, it's been out for a year or two. The biggest difference on the outside, it's hard to tell the difference. We Our market primarily is OEMs and OEMs hate change, OEM machine builders. Right. So we make the changes that we need to make 
without necessarily changing everything from scratch on every new product line. They're, so, okay, with, they're okay with change as long as it doesn't change anything for them. <laughs> exactly. And they were they were struggling a little bit with that one part number change, you know, the one digit of the part number that changed from the XL series to the XL Prime series. But the big difference is we modernized two things. One is we upgraded the chipset internally, not yeah. just one chip, but several chips. Uh, one, to make sure that there were no supply chain issues moving forward. Because we all know what happened with, you know, older chips getting obsoleted and being struggling to get. Uh, the other thing we did is we eliminated as many batteries as we could. So, you know, batteries are the bane of PLCs and HMIs, to be honest. Right. Uh, so at some point in their 10 or 15 or 20 year life, they're going to have to be replaced and all that sort of thing. So the XL series utilizes, you know, battery technology from, you know, a few years ago. And the XL Prime series uses FRAM and MRAM, and the only battery is one coin cell for the clock. That's it. All other uh, chips, you know, their memory is maintained, you know, without having to have a battery. Right. And so one of the most annoying things I have, we have this demo board over here. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got uh, Direct Logics, We've got a Siemens S7-1200. We have an mm -hmm. Easy Automation mm -hmm. TLC. We've got a Control Logics. Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, we have a Arduino Opta Wi-Fi over there. So we got a bunch of hardware mm -hmm. and three of the four PLCs over there. They without, you know, the, every time that we unplug it, the program's got to be reloaded. You know? Right. Right. So it's, it's, it's batteries. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's just, you know, and, and trying to get the batteries is, mm -hmm. is problematic. All right. So let's go back to your your Square D days. And then sure. you go to Square D after. Mm -hmm. First off, why did you. Why did you go to the OEM? Sure. Um, but what was the decision you made? Right. So when I was, you know, General Motors, you know, or Fisher Body at the time was where I was working through my college days. Uh -huh. And then that particular plant didn't have any openings when I was done. They were on a hiring freeze. So, but I did get an offer from a General Motors plant in Janesville, Wisconsin that made Suburbans. And it was a good offer that they were going to have me be an electrical supervisor in their electrical department for the assembly plant. The only problem was one of the things I also learned in my co-op experience is I didn't want to work in a plant 24-7, you know? I loved visiting plants and working in plants, but I didn't want to be locked into a plant. So what was attractive about Square D, where I went instead, was I was working in their PLC division as a field applications engineer, working in different plants every week, solving problems, whatever I needed to be doing. Um, but I wasn't in the same plant 24-7. So that that was what drove that, me there. One of the things I realized about the vendors, you know, I, my first 10 years of my or 12 years of my career, mm -hmm. I worked for the end user. So I did mm -hmm. mining first, then printing, then steel, and then tier one automotive. And I, right. it was by design. I wanted to cover many different processes before I came a consult, became a consultant. Sure. And one of the things I, I mean, you lit my, my life, when I worked for the end user, my life was my responsibility you know right. no one ever told me you're you're responsible for your domain 24 7 mm -hmm. but it was just understood that you're responsible for your domain 24 7 right right and, and the one of the things i noticed about the vendors is the vendors were only in here monday through friday you know six in the morning to six in the after six in the evening at the absolute latest unless there's right. like some type of runoff or something some right. functional acceptance test or and i was like you know i think i kind of would prefer those hours a little bit better. You know, they're not getting called at two o'clock in the morning. So, right. so how long were you with Square D? 
not that long, really, just a couple years. So, and I worked in the Detroit area as a field application engineer and had a lot of great experience there, uh -huh. um, but had a life change that caused the next move. And that was, I got engaged and ended up marrying a gal from Indianapolis. So moving from Michigan to Indianapolis was, that kind of drove the next move. And it just worked out that um, Horner was looking for, uh, at that time, they were looking for a PLC specialist and that fit in my, in my uh, capability. So that's why I went down there. And then literally uh, from the time they hired me to the time I actually started, my job was effectively obsoleted. So <laughs> Horner, before we, start, we, before we were a PLC manufacturer, we were a distributor. We were selling our products that we made plus products from GE back when GE was a PLC company way before Emerson bought them. But anyway, um, and as a PLC specialist, my job was to sell the, the GE stuff and some of the Horner stuff too. And then from the time, again, between that one month period or whatever it is, when I showed up, they said, well, we're strictly going to manufacturing now. So that your job description has changed. And so you've been with Horner since 1990. 1990. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So eight and then eight. And then it was the, the, they became a PLC company towards the end of the 90s. Right. Right. So effectively, at the time that they hired me and at the time when my job description changed, we were primarily a third party development company for GE. Back in those days, all the big guys had third parties they would work with to do the products they didn't think had enough volume to justify their investment. Um, but they knew they needed to offer them or they should at least be available. So they would often work with a third party. And we were the third party with GE. So we did all kinds of lower volume type modules like thermocouple and RTD modules before PLC manufacturers put those in. And back in the early field bus days when nobody knew what network was going to be the one that people were going to use, we did all kinds of field bus networks, most of which went the way of the dodo bird because they weren't they didn't end up being either you know, Ethernet IP or DeviceNet or Profibus or something. So it was it was 20 years later before GE imploded, right? So so Homer yeah. Horner was a was a GE, yeah, distributor. Like I mean, right. so I mean, let's talk about the GE thing for the audience sure. real quick. Right. So GE is the modern day Kodak. Most people don't know this, but it right. is the modern day Kodak. Um, right. 25 years from now, we will talk about GE today in this well really starting in like the jeff immelt days we will talk right. about jeff immelt's leadership at ge as the equivalent to the decline of kodak in the late 70s and 80s i i, I don't like saying that it doesn't pleasure me to say that but it's it's the facts and you're not the only one who said it right immelt immelt ran ran he made strategic decisions that ran ge digital into the into the ground and and so the result of that was Emerson doing this acquisition mm -hmm. in 2019 to try to save save the save uh, that which was still valuable in that space. Mm -hmm. So, but you guys moved, you pivoted. I mean, there were a lot of people who were relying on GE. Who I mean, right. there were a lot of companies that went out of business, right. and from 2010 to 2020 mm -hmm. that were affiliated with GE. Right. I mean, Emerson didn't keep most of them. Emerson right. cut most of the relationships. Um, you guys obviously pivoted early. Oh yeah, we're early. So we're what, what, what happened with us is, um, at one point in like 98 ish approximately, yeah. um, they decided that they, we were valuable enough to them that they should acquire us. GE now they only acquire you. Right. GE Fanic at the time, right? That Not division that. of GE. Now they only acquired 
a little less than 20% of us. That's how that worked. And then they, and at that point they were on their second CEO in 20 years or something very stable. Well, immediately after they acquired us, that particular division of GE had just a run of like, a seemed like a new CEO over six months. They were kind of using it as a training ground. Right. And, um, and then, you know, our, our businesses kind of grew apart a little bit. The goals didn't seem to be aligned. And what ended up happening was our owners were a privately held company, even still, our owners basically said, you know, this hasn't worked out so great. Let's buy back our stock. So we effectively, after, I don't know if it was three years or four years or five years, but anyway, early 2000s, we got our stock back. And at that point, we said, you know, the writing's a bit on the wall. We need to take our business, which maybe in 1998 was 95% GE related, or at that time, maybe it was only 90% GE related. We had to get that down to a healthy number. And so that was an important thing for us to do in those days. And that's what we did. Some of your eggs out of that basket. Yes. All our development eggs were all in other baskets. Uh, You know, obviously the products we continued to sell were GE compatible and those sorts of things. And we still sell some products today, Emerson based products today that we designed and still manufacture for Emerson, but it's a very small percentage of our business today. Got it. So, so now let me ask you this question. Sure. Um, The, who was Horner's primary customer? So in, in, in 98, when Horner said, hey, we're going to build our own PLCs and sell them, mm-hmm. go to market with them. Right. Who, the OEMs were the primary customers, but what types of OEMs? Sure. And so, then the question that follows that is, who are your customers today? Right. So let's back up slightly, just a couple of years earlier than that. Let's go back to 95. So in 95, most of our business was all GE related still, of course. Well, there was a big project going on with the U.S. Post Office where they wanted to they did, it was called the tray management system. They, they had a high speed conveyor system. They had a certain architecture that they wanted. They wanted a PL, a small PLC to control every section of conveyor. It wasn't like a centralized control. They wanted this distributed control system. They went to the major PLC vendors and all the major PLC vendors passed. They said, you know, the only products we make that could do this are our mid-sized PLCs and they're way too expensive. Well, GE said, well, wait a minute, we have this development partner of ours. You should talk to them. They might be interested. So we actually developed a custom PLC, distributed PLC over CAN. This uh-huh. was back even before DeviceNet was finalized. Um, and we basically said, okay, we'll do that for you. And from like 1995 to 2000, I think we ended up selling like 40 or 50,000 of those to the U.S. Post Office. And as part of that development, of course, we now had a PLC engine, we had software, we had other assets that we didn't have before that time. Because right. before that time, our specialty was communications and IO. And so the the so essentially the US Postal Service funded it funded the development of this, the future of the company. Okay. That's that's really the way you can look at it. Absolutely. And then so today, who are who are Horner's if 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 you were bootstrapped mm-hmm. by the USPS, right? Who are Horner's customers today? Sure. So we sell it. The types of customers we sell to, they're 75, 80% OEM. So OEM machine builders in all kinds of different industries. But it's really diverse. I mean, it's oil and gas, it's water, wastewater, it's building management, um, it's food and beverage. Um, it's all over the agriculture is another big one. So it's really all over the place. And the, the probably the biggest common characteristic, besides the fact that a lot of them are you know machine builders, is a lot of them are small to medium-sized machine builders. The guys that don't necessarily have the best experience with a Rockwell or a Siemens because they're not big enough to make a difference to Rockwell or Siemens, right? 
Got it. So uh, we can take care of them better than those guys. We can also, we're also much more open to customization. You know, whether it's a little change in hardware or it's a software feature, whatever the case may be, you know, we're, we're open. Hey, we'll listen. If it's something that makes sense, we'll do it. And and I I don't, I don't want to plug one of your competitors here, but I want to, Mm -hmm. it's an, it's a, it's an appropriate example where Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I was so big on easy automation Mm -hmm. in, in, you know, five, six years ago, which I I still am. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I like the company a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. The was because. When we went to Rockwell, for example, to get MQTT support in their right. PSDs, mm-hmm. and we went to Siemens and said, we want MQTT support. And we went to basically every major manufacturer and said, mm-hmm. we want MQTT natively on the hardware. Mm-hmm. Everybody said no. They mm-hmm. all, it, easy automation was literally, we, we talked to the CEO and he's like, mm-hmm. you know what? We could put that support in and 24 hours and, and they had a beta they had a beta firmware we could just drop on a plc and it had you could you could turn that plc into a sparkplug v device mm-hmm. right? and i absolutely i call that agility in the market sure it's a, yeah i love companies that can i mean try and get that done at rockwell right and you know good good you know good luck you know but don't even get me started but let me ask you this question sure you said you guys do 50 million you're a 50 million dollar company mm-hmm. Right. right. Mm-hmm. What keeps you from being a hundred million? Uh, part of which is we spend a lot more money on engineering than we do on marketing. Right. I mean, let's face it. If you did, if you went to business school and all that stuff, you'd say, okay, this percentage of your, 10%. of your outlay should be on marketing, et cetera, et cetera. We don't follow that model. Um, you know, we have a fantastic ownership group. I mean, it's the Horner family. It's Phil Horner, who's our primary. He's he's in charge of our automation business, and his brother Alan's also heavily involved in so Phil the total is a, business. Phil's an engineer. Phil is an engineer, and he, you know, and he makes he's he's really done a great job with our company, you know. But as a classic business model, we spend there's we don't probably don't spend as much uh, or haven't over the years at least marketing wise versus you know where so we spend some so of our your money. growth so your growth starts in indianapolis and it organically spreads slowly right instead of you would think that but right? but but the business model actually is so going back to the ge days our business model from the way we sell our products was always to sell through distributors right so our sales are are not geographic whatsoever believe yeah. it or not our sales yeah. are spread there's well there you know we're bigger in the midwest etc but but it's not necessarily indiana so i'd like to say this so if you to our audience mm-hmm. if you've if you've used a horner automation plc comment down below mm-hmm. in, in on the youtube channel so if you're listening on apple Podcasts or whatever go over to youtube and comment down below i want to i mean we'll put this in the discord also josh ask mm-hmm. in the discord under edge you know what are people's experiences with with, I mean, I, I know the company. When you guys reached out, I'm like, mm-hmm. I know what you guys do. I know who you are. Sure. Um, but I, I've only worked with your PLCs twice. And they, both of them were prime. And both of them are in the last 18 months, probably 12 right. days, something like that. Makes so sense. Let me, um, let me ask this question. So sure. how have PLCs, you've been there 30-something years. Oh, yeah. How, how have PLCs changed? Not just Horner's mm-hmm. PLCs, but right. in general. Let's have the the... Originally, the PLC was a manifestation of, you know, it, it started with relay logic mm-hmm. and relay logic became embedded logic. And mm-hmm. then and then a PLC is basically not, is designed to replicate relay logic inside mm-hmm. of a really, really small device with. Right. 
Well, now what we've seen is PLCs have evolved into a a hybrid Mm -hmm. of process control from the Mm -hmm. sequence of operation Mm -hmm. and the functional specification to Mm -hmm. also industrial PC, edge Mm -hmm. edge gateway, edge PC in conjunction with that PLC. So A, where does Horner fit in that that paradigm? And B, what are your observations in the market on how PLCs have changed? Sure. So let's start with B first. Uh, how PLCs have changed because that kind of rolls right into, you know, where Horner's at. So, yep. you know, keep in mind, my start of my career was mid to late 80s. Um, the, the, some of the biggest differences, one is, of course, physical size. PLCs were huge back then. Yep. That's kind of an obvious one. Yep. But really, it's all the stuff around the PLCs that's changed more than anything, right? Um, you know, very few, you know, an, a, a user interface back in the 80s and early 90s was push buttons, pilot lights, and meters yes. and gauges. That was the yes. user interface. So if you were a guy, if you were someone who built a, you know, if you built the user interface, mm-hmm. you were using a hole saw more than you were more than you were using a keyboard. I mean, that was right. it was a simple reality. Right. And in 1988, when I worked for Square D and went into this stamping plant at Ford, which was incredibly modern for its day. And it had an HMI on every single press. It was a CRT is what yeah. it was, yeah. you know, a color CRT, you know, right. that was however deep that was. So, yeah. So, so the things around the PLC is the big change. The, the, of course the HMIs and things, but also the connectivity, right? Um, I mean, everything is c- connected these days. At least it should be, if it isn't already, there's no excuse because right. every PLC from the smallest that you can buy you know, has some level of connectivity in it. So I don't think, I can't think of one that doesn't. Right. I can't, I can't think of anything in the market today right. that doesn't have on board. I, in fact, it would be preposterous to, I right. mean, it would basically be a paperweight. But Exactly. Uh, okay. Yeah. So so those are the two biggest things, the things around the PLC. The, the Everything now has a formal HMI and everything is connected. Well, if you pivot to what Horner does, that's really where we see ourselves. The all-in-one approach is, we're going to offer not only control, but a built-in touchscreen, and you're going to have all kinds of networking connectivity options. And because we're not Rockwell or Siemens, we can't just support only Ethernet IP or only Profinet. We've got to support several different options. Um, and of course, you know, the, the other things that you expect in a PLC. And nowadays, a built-in edge capability. So that story you told about easy automation and MQTT is very yes. much analogous to how we got Sparkplug in our product. And that is one of our good system integrator, water, wastewater, OEM said, you know what? We got to have spark plug for a project. And we said, all right, let's do it. And so does, so prime comes spark plug ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, XL series comes spark plug ready. Yep. Those and, are the two products that have spark plug capability. Yes. And do you, and do they both, do they also support flat MQTT or is it the, you only configure the device as a, spark plug node and then transmit to a broker or do you have also flat mqtt capabilities as yeah well? so it's basically at this stage it's you've got to transfer to a to yeah. a spark to a broker oh, right by the way, that it should be that way i mm-hmm. mean there are, it should be that way here's why spark mm-hmm. plug was written for the device so mm-hmm. i mean it's designed if you're going to put mqtt on a plc you mm-hmm. should package it as the edge of network node mm-hmm. using the spark plug specification it's wholly appropriate but right. eventually someone will say, you know what? I don't want to use Sparkplug. I want to package everything in a payload right. and dump it as a JSON, you know, right. to some flat topic. Right. How, how long have you guys had MQTT support? About three years now. 
Okay. So you guys, three were, you guys were early then. Mm-hmm. We were pretty early. And again, it was all because of a customer. I mean, we were paying attention. Don't get me wrong. We don't wait for customers to tell us what we need to do. Right. But it was on the list of things we knew we wanted to do. And that it's just drove it, it to be move it up in the priority list. So what about edge compute capabilities? So is there, it, it, even, even at a, a basic level, let's mm-hmm. say I wanted to do, I want to put a Linux container and, mm-hmm. and, and maybe do some data operations using Python or um, green, you know AWS Greengrass or something sure. like that. Does does Horner in any of their product lines support that type of uh, capability? Not Just yet. Computer. Not yet. That's definitely in development, and we've got a you know we've got a a big new a, a big new um, development that's going on to make that happen. But we're not there yet. And what about your price point? So if you wanted to tell people, hey, this is where we fit mm-hmm. in, in the market in terms of price point. What is the What's the general range? So let's go sure. XL Prime. Right. What is the general range with sta- is is standard I/O eight in eight out four in four out? What's the? Sure. So let's let's back up a little bit. So the the entry level product is Micro Series, okay. and that is has anywhere from a two inch display to a ten inch display. Okay. It has thirty I/O built in, so okay. twelve in, twelve out, four analog in, two analog out. Those start around. For 300, 350 range for a two inch display going up to maybe 1200, somewhere in that range for the larger displays. Okay. That's kind of the micro series. And those are the, touch. Those are touch. Oh, yeah. They're, well, only the only the very lowest one isn't a touch. Everything else from four inches up is all touch. Screens. So it's key based. The smallest one is key based. Yeah, and that, they got it. All right. Yeah, we have one model that's key based. Everything else is touch based. So three, 300 to 1200 on the micro. Yeah, somewhere in, in that range. Yeah, and then the XL series ranges from let's say five hundred dollars up to a couple thousand, uh, which is about where the XL Prime is. I mean, they're they're effectively priced the same. The main difference between the XL and XL Prime is just you know the XL series has been around longer, has different chips on the inside, although it programs the same. Uh, XL Prime is newer, so pricing is the same for the two. And I, what is standard I/O? If you if you were to if you were to give mm-hmm. us the the mean I/O in the XL XL Prime series, sure. what would that be? The most popular one. There's two models that are the most popular. One is 12 DC in, six relay out, four analog in. That's okay. a very popular model. And then the other one is 12 digital in, 12 digital out, six analog in, four analog out. The real process heavy one, where each of the analogs is either you know individually thermocouple rtd 4 to 20 milliamps 0 to 10 volt whatever so okay so this would be appropriate for so in general Mm -hmm. your your plc line would be appropriate for discrete process control uh with right up to motion not motion right before motion right no motion control sure no embedded motion control people that use motion with our stuff are going to marry it to the servo drives over a network got it and how do you do distributed control? So let's say, mm-hmm. say so it does XL Prime support distributed control across devices? It depends on your definition of distributed control. Now, from a networking standpoint, we have really good distributed control networking. Okay. Uh, one reason is because, remember, we started with a huge distributed control system with the post office, and we just carried some of that infrastructure through. So we do have some really good distributed control CAN protocols that are kind of plug and play and distributed very nicely. And then, you know, we also have, you know, some distributed uh, Ethernet control or Ethernet protocols that we also use. So you can do you can do distributed control quite well with our product. OPC server on board or no? 
Not yet. No, that's one of those. We haven't had a customer drive us there yet. Right. You know, we it's on our list, but nobody's driven us there yet. Now that you have spark plug, I'm not sure why you would, you know, you know spark plug yeah. support. I, I'm not sure what the reason would be, but I, I kind of, I would have thought OPC server first and then, but um, any other features that, I mean, at the end of the day, if you, mm -hmm. are you on our discord server? Do you go in the, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So have you looked in the edge? You've looked sure. at the edge channel. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you look at most of the applications that people are asking about, mm -hmm. they are less automation. Like right. it's almost like everyone just assumes automation is the easy part, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. everyone's talking about data operations. They're talking about, right. um, you know, closed loop control where I want to take data. I want to send it up the stack. Right. I want to process it. I want to learn from it. Mm -hmm. I want to predict the future. And then I want to send commands back right. to the device that's what right. most people are talking about right right your your eye is on that ball right the infrastructure is sure. in place mm -hmm. obviously for horner's plcs to be able to support those types of use cases mm -hmm. all right what what are your what are the goals right when you guys came here what do you want to see horner like you know to to come and come on the podcast and like have this conversation be willing to come have this conversation Ultimately, what is Horner's goal? Where do you see Horner five years? I mean, obviously, edge compute is you guys are doing some work on the edge compute mm -hmm. side. You'll probably mm -hmm. expand on the distributed control side. What mm -hmm. what, is, what are your guys' goals? So from a certain extent, right? I mean, with the whole industrial 4.0 revolution that's you know eventually going to happen, right? The whole right. idea there is for companies to transform from being you know, product-based to being data-based, right? right? That's the whole idea. That's the yeah. ultimate end goal. And as a manufacturer, we can't ignore that, right? And we want to make sure we're participating in that and we're doing that ourselves. So um, part of the goal, especially with, you know, uh, podcasts like yours, which are so focused on this whole digitization effort, um, you know, we want to make sure we're plugged into what's happening and we have a good, clear direction on what we need to do and let the market drive us to what we need to do. Because we don't have infinite resources just like anybody else. We right. can't drive the market. You know, right. we're not Rockwell or Siemens. So we've got to stay plugged in and understand what we need to do as we go through the same transformation that our customers are going through. Well, this is this is why the community is so important. I, I had a chance earlier, like in September, I got invited to go to um, a conference in Boston called Digital Factory. I was only there for one day, mm -hmm. but I, I was invited to go there and cover it as, as media. Mm -hmm. And Blake Moray, or Moret, depending upon how he, he, who is the CEO of Rockwell Automation, was doing a series of fireside chats with another CEO from um, Tulip. Mm -hmm. Tulip is a edge platform. And um, well, it's, it's really an operator platform. And Blake looked like an idiot. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. He looked, he was absolutely not up to the task. He looked, it, it, he li literally looked like a CEO, a dead man walking. I actually said that. I'm like his, the board of directors will be so upset with him with the, He just does not understand where the market is going. And, and here, here's, here's how I'm going to back that up. Um, we do, we have a process called the digital transformation maturity assessment. Mm -hmm. And that was a process we created where we score companies across 10 industry four pillars. So in order for organization to understand where they need to go, one of those pillars, by the way, mm -hmm. is infrastructure. And infrastructure is includes PLC infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Okay, which, which types of PLCs are you using? What types of protocols do they support? What mm -hmm. types of data operations do they support? One of the pillars is infrastructure. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
we just did a digital transformation maturity assessment for a company. We actually did the scoring last week. So our team did the actual assessment over a series of weeks. They are, uh, they're a legacy company, been around, you know, decades. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at our digital transformation maturity, so we actually score companies on their digital maturity, and then we can compare them to these other manufacturers. Mm -hmm. And there's more than 1,400 companies in that data set. If you look at the, the most digitally mature company in the world, it's Tesla. It's not even, mm -hmm. it really isn't even close. Sure. Their aggregate score is 86. And then the next score is an 83 and that's Volkswagen North America. Mm -hmm. And then right behind that uh, you have Amazon and then right, believe it or not, Volkswagen North America has a higher digital maturity score than Amazon. Okay. Mm. And they're the only legacy company in the top 10. And okay. then, and then you have another, uh, there's a, a, like a water wastewater company, the, but if you look at the top 10 companies, nine of them started after the year 2000. Sure. One of them is legacy. Yeah. Okay. It's very rare for uh, the mean score in the digital maturity scale is a 56. So they're scored zero to 100. Mm -hmm. The mean is a 56. Standard deviation is 15. Okay. So two standard deviations is 86. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which is where Tesla is. Mm -hmm. All right. So. Um, we did a score of a company, a legacy company who came in with a, uh, digital maturity score of an aggregate score of 76 just this last mm. week. Now, by all intents and purposes, if they had called us and just based on what we knew about them, what we could Google on them, we would have never guessed that they were a 76. Mm -hmm. What this showed to us, it only reinforced to us just how quickly companies are maturing digitally um, in, in 2023. Like COVID okay. is really ultimately what drove it, freaked everybody out. And they right. all, you know, you know, they, they it wasn't, it was no longer more, uh, it was no more a want, it was a need. Right. But here's something else, an interesting factoid. So you have that legacy company that comes in at a 76, where three years ago, they were, they were a 50. Okay. okay? And behind that, this year, my, my integrator, Two years ago, we did one machine learning project. So if you looked at all the projects we did for the whole year, which were 80 something engagements with customers, mm -hmm. we had one that had a machine learning application. That was mm -hmm. 2022. Mm -hmm. 2023, we did 60 something projects. We had, we had a lot more large engagements. Right. So we were doing a lot more smaller, a lot less smaller stuff. Right. And we had 17 machine learning applications. Mm. That's some pretty serious growth there. So from one to 17. And now we're looking at for next year, our clients are, and by the way, ML is not possible without digital maturity. Like mm -hmm. you have to, you, across those 10 pillars, you must have PLCs that can support data operations out of the box. They can support industrial IIoT protocols. By the newsflash, Siemens, Siemens PLCs do not, unless you put mm -hmm. the MQTT block in there. Mm -hmm. um, Rockwell's PLCs do not, they are, they are not. You actually get a very low score if you're using Rockwell PLCs, mm. right? Um, if you're using Rockwell PLCs with gateways that convert to MQTT, then you get a high score. Right. But if you don't, then you get a low score. Right. So the reality is, is that this year alone, in 2023, we have seen an exponential leap in digital maturity. Hmm. Next year, we expect the ML applications that we're going to be doing to more than double. From, right. they, went, they went 17x this year. We expect them to go another two. We expect to do 30, 40, 50 applications mm -hmm. next year, right? right? And what does that tell us? It tells us that companies are 
they're they are maturing digitally at an exponential rate. Right. Right. And the market's just getting some companies are getting slaughtered and some companies are just taking off. Right. right. And so with that, do you feel that Horner is positioned to fill that fill the gap in the market, which is somebody came to you and said, hey, we got to have MQTT on board because mm-hmm. the customer wants MQTT on board. Right. If they go and they, if they had, they gone to Rockwell, for, by the way, Rockwell still doesn't support MQTT natively. Hmm. They have MQTT, but they only support it within the Rockwell ecosystem. Okay. You can't use hmm. MQTT to talk out of the Rockwell ecosystem. Hmm. Kind of defeats um, the purpose. Yeah, well, yeah, but you, I mean, again, they, their CEO is a moron. So, and that's not you speaking, that's me speaking. So the, um, and, uh, you know, and Blake, by the way, you can come on here and defend yourself. I, of course, um, do you feel Horner is positioned? To... I do. Okay. Yeah, I do. I mean, there's there's still more we can do. There's no question. But um, especially if you're an OEM machine builder and you're looking to offer kind of that native capability built into your machine, you know, uh, yeah, you can add a gateway to a Rockwell system, of course, to get to achieve that. But, you know, we have it natively in our, uh, in our product. And effectively, you can now have that, you know, you can really have a big advantage uh, price-wise, in addition to the functionality-wise, just by having it kind of embedded right in the the machine controller. So, Do you, you have kids. You have kids. Yes, I have two daughters. And how they are? They already out of college and yeah, right? they're in their twenties, mid mid to late twenties. Okay. How how this is a totally off the subject, but uh, the how was their entry into the workforce different than yours? How was it different than mine? Oh, geez, how was it? It was like it was like Mars versus Earth, right? Right, um, completely different than mine. I mean, mine. You know, back in that day, it was the day of I don't want to say greed, but you know, it was the eighties. How quickly can you get through college and make a bunch Gordon, of money? It was, Gordon Ge- it was a Gordon Gecko decade, right? absolutely. And that was all about you know, are you are you getting your career started quickly so you can start making money quickly? Uh, for my kids, it's all the other things are so much more important. One daughter. All she wanted to do was work for, you know, she joined um, like the equivalent of the Peace Corps uh, so she could go help people. Uh, She's been working for nonprofits for the last five years, making sure that she's doing good in the world. My other daughter is uh, when she's when she's not working, she works plenty. But when she's not working, she's traveling around the world so she can see the world and experience the world and meet other people. So totally different than mine. I, I would say this, it, I, two things. So for though we have a lot of our audience, um, I, I don't know what the percentage is dem- mm-hmm. demographically, but it, we have a lot of students in college mm-hmm. and those who are getting ready, who are just started their first jobs. Mm-hmm. And a lot, I get a, a tons and tons. Of, I, in fact, I got an email today about a guy, a kid asking me to mentor him, which I, I am going to mentor him. But mm-hmm. he, a lot of the questions are, you know, what, how do I make the right decision in my career? Like, how do I, um, you know, how do I pick the right place to work? How do I make the right decision? I, I, Mm -hmm. so I I wanted to take this opportunity here. Mm -hmm. Your path doesn't really exist anymore. It it does, but it's rare. It's, I mean, there's the rare case, but your path into this industry doesn't exist anymore. Right. And my path into this industry, it still does, but again, it's, it's, it's more rare, right? Mm -hmm. It's, for example, I'm an electrical engineer as well. Mm-hmm. I, the idea that I would be an electrical engineer with, without being a BSEE when, in 2000 is, was preposterous. Right. Today, 
you could be an electrical engineer and not be BSE. I mean, you could right. not have a degree at all. Right. And you could educate yourself and mm -hmm. test into a, a, an electrical engineering role. Right. Absolutely. Especially if you work for a smaller company that is going to be more open minded. Correct. And, and, and I actually think that's better mm -hmm. because one of the things that I saw, and I, I'm sure you saw this when you were in school, how people were mismatched to their program, mm -hmm. but they stayed in the program because they were already invested in the program. Right. Right. Instead of pivoting to something that was that was more uh, in, aligned with their aptitude. So sure. any, number one, that's changed is that people are much more aligned with their aptitudes mm -hmm. today, I think, than Agreed. when I was starting. Number two, and this is probably the biggest difference. None of us were asking about corporate missions when we were mm. like, what does this business stand for? What does right. this company stand for? Do they want to do good in the world? All that kind of stuff. Right. Nobody was asking about that when I was first coming out of college. I wasn't even asking, and I'm, an, <laughs> and I'm a mission-based guy. Right. Every young person today wants to know what a company stands for. Like, mm. what is the, what's the higher purpose? Yes, we're making money, but what is our reason for making money? Is it... Mm -hmm. Is it we just want to make the shareholders richer or are we doing good? Are we being corporate citizens, right? Mm -hmm. That's probably the fundamental, and it sounds like your daughters would agree with that. Oh, yeah. That the, 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 the meaning of work is, has right. changed, right? It's, I, I like to say we're always at work, we're always at home today. Mm -hmm. the, the idea that home, whenever I hear the term home work-life balance, I think... That that that's such, that's such an old term. Today, right? Part of what makes us more efficient is that I can be at, at work um, all the time, and I can be home all the time. I can be at work and home at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. Where that was impossible when my career started. It was right. not possible, right? So the idea that if since you're always at work, you better be doing something you love. You bet. You better be doing something you want to be doing, mm -hmm. right? Not just necessarily something you need to be doing, but you may have to do something you need to do, you, you need to do on your way to doing what you want to do. Right. right? That's absolutely. Cool. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Where sure. do you, where do you see, where do you see, you've seen how it's changed since your career started mm -hmm. where you are today. Mm -hmm. Where do, what does the next 10 years look like for the market? What in, in a, for those who are in the, who are coming out of school, Right. And are getting their first jobs. But also, how do you see the market changing over the next 10 years? Because that might help these young people decide, you know, which domains mm -hmm. they should be focused on for their careers. Because, right. I mean, there, there are very few people who are uniquely positioned to answer that question. Clearly, you are one of those people. So Sure, sure. So, yeah, no, I would say that where things are heading, I mean, I think you just you, you mentioned yourself that in this world of factory automation and the whole, you know, the six level model or five level model. Um, I mean, think that the, if the digital transformation is finally accelerating where it should have probably been a couple of years ago, um, if that's happening, then things are going to really be start advancing big time. And then it's going to be all about, you know, the holy grail as you describe it. And that is how can we take our data and turn it around and then you know ai and machine learning and all those things are going to be absolutely critical um so i would say that is definitely the direction that young people should be well aware of if you're not if you're not getting versed if you're not getting uh, educated on ai and machine learning and you're looking to be in this industry 
then you could, you know, then you're making a mistake. You need to at least be versed on it, even if it's not something you end up doing every single day of your life. And so me, that's a big thing. And I would also say scripting. Everybody needs to be able to code on some level. Absolutely. You, you should at least be able to write a script in a scripting language on some level. I always encourage people to get started with Python so you mm -hmm. understand how code works. Yep. But on the MLAI, I couldn't agree more. MLAI, mm -hmm. machine learning and artificial intelligence mm -hmm. is 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 a is going to grow exponentially. The use cases right. are going to grow exponentially. And for those of you who don't know what they are, machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Artificial intelligence is computers mimicking human intelligence. Machine learning is computers learning from data. That's, mm -hmm. you know, you see lots and lots of definition out there, but it's that simple. Machine learning is using computers to learn from data and mm -hmm. artificial intelligence is using computers to mimic human intelligence. Right. And I agree. I, I believe it is a very, very short period of time before, I mean, actually we've been using artificial intelligence and PLCs for a long time. Mm -hmm. Whenever you talk about like tuning a PID loop, mm -hmm. you're using, you're using artificial intelligence to tune a PID loop. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, you're using algorithms right. to make a PID loop operate more efficiently, efficiently based on the control variable and the process variable. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, what I would say is this: it is a very short period of time before we just start embedding the uh, ML block, function block, mm -hmm. whatever it is, the ML use case, the the model we've trained. We will. It's very short period of time before we just drop that into a PLC program. And it will be part of the automation itself. Agreed. And yeah, it's you, coming. Yeah, it is coming. And if you and if you're going to be a PLC programmer, uh, you're going to be an, an automation engineer. Your eyeballs need to be on that. How am I going to be using computers to learn from data to make mm -hmm. my programs better, right? right. My, my, my or my functions better, right? Yeah. All right, Chuck, Chuck. Any any parting words for you? Anything else that you wanted to? Um, talk about say before we we put a bow on it no it's been a great conversation um for those folks who maybe all they ever know is you know the big companies out there from a plc standpoint broaden your broaden your horizons a little bit take a look especially if you're not necessarily you know if, if you're working on a new project or a new machine broaden your horizons a little bit take a look at what else is out there if nothing else to you know increase your knowledge of of what's available in the market, as well as you know, you know what uh, what's offered that isn't necessarily what you are used to using. So Luke, broaden your horizons a little bit. Let me pitch something here to you, Chuck. Would it be sure. possible to get a demo unit to put on our board, mm -hmm. and then bring you or one of your application engineers back to a uh, and do a a live integration with us into sure. our. And we do it with our mentorship and master mastermind students. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. I'd love to do that. that. All right, Josh, will you handle the follow up on that piece? So, um, we'll we'll what we'll do is we'll do a Horner automation integration similar to what we did with Phoenix Contact, similar mm -hmm. to what we've done with Opto Twenty Two. Mm -hmm. We'll integrate into our existing um, industry four ecosystem. We have a broker; it's running in the cloud, and everybody just kind of publishes their data to it, and they can. Sure. They use it for demos and that kind of stuff. And we'll we'll integrate one of your, we'll go soup to nuts from powering it on for the first time mm -hmm. to writing a program and streaming the data as a Sparkplug B node into our, our broker infrastructure. Nice. That'd Perfect. be fantastic. Oh, awesome. All right. Chuck, thanks for, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I know it's hard to get 
something scheduled the week before Christmas. <laughs> Have a Merry Christmas if you, you too. haven't already said so. Uh, thank you guys for watching. Like, subscribe, comment down below, and we will see you in the next one.